Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Dean Fox, and I'm here with one of my favorite people to talk to about everything, but particularly what we're going to talk to today. Molly Jungfast is back with us again today. Welcome, Molly. Thank you for having me, Emily. Okay. I could talk to you about anything for days, hours, years, but the only thing that I want to talk about, and I think the only political story worth talking about right now really is George Santos. And thankfully, you want to talk about this as much as I do. Uh, Yes. I think we all, I actually think that media at writ large, we all want to talk about George Santos because I feel like he's like a satire of a Republican congressman. Like, Well, well, SNL tried to satirize him over the weekend and he was not happy with their performance, which is like the ultimate. (laughs) It's end stage MAGA is when when he's like, no, man, I'm more satirical than satire. It's truly, uh, New York Magazine has this uh, incredible catalog of all of the lies that he's told. And I was going through it as as we were waiting to record here. And I've been following the story pretty closely, but I cannot get over where we are. New York Magazine wrote this very funny thing that basically says, is he broke or rich? Is he Jewish or Catholic? Did his family members really die in the Holocaust or September 11th? (laughs) To ask these questions is probably the most insane thing I could ever imagine. And yet we're having to ask these questions over and over again. What are some of the most outrageous lies that you have sort of been party to as we go through this scandal? Well, there are a lot of lies. I actually think the one that is the most baffling is the one about him being on the volleyball team Mm. at Baruch College and then having to have two knee replacements because he did volleyball. I mean, that one just strikes me as like, is being on a volleyball team so great? Is having two knee replacements a believable thing that would happen to you in college after being on a volleyball team? I mean, it's just such a weird kind of convoluted lie, like the lies about like having uh, grandparents who were in the Holocaust, right? You could sort of see like that lie, you know, he's running for office in Nassau County, an area that's very Jewish, an area where there are a lot of grandchildren of survivors. Okay, it's sort of expedient, makes sense. 
But some of these other lies, you know, and the 9-11 lie, even the mother dying in 9-11, a lot of people from Nassau County worked in the towers. There's a lot of, you know, that you could make sense. But the volleyball stuff is just like knee, you know, people have had knee replacements or like an important voting group. I mean, I don't think so. Even if if they are an important, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they're an important voting group. (laughs) I don't know that you're choosing your congressman because they've also had knee replacement surgery. That doesn't feel like um, a tie that binds in the electoral booth. I, I, I can't decide if some of these lies, like the knee replacement lie, are just for sport, that he is so in the practice of lying that he kind of wants to see what he gets away with. I don't I don't know if that's the psychology there. I do think there's a certain lying bravado that's part of the mental illness there. And, and I, you know, I was on Morning Joe talking about this last week, and Mika was saying, you know, that he definitely is mentally ill. And certainly the door is open to that, and I think – that that's why we have to take it seriously. And again, you know, the drag queen stuff, you know, it's not the, the problem with him is not that he's gay or that he was a drag queen. It's that he ran as a Republican in a party that attacked and villainized LGBTQ people and called them groomers. And then actually, you know, it's the hypocrisy, not the other facts that are the, like my largest problem with him. Well, sure. And and the problem that I think that we're facing is, and we can talk about what will happen politically in the weeks, months, years to come in terms of a special election or an election um, at the normal election cycle. But it doesn't seem like there's any consequences, at least right now. And he doesn't seem to have to really be answering to this because the Republican Party is aiding and abetting this and not really doing anything and not really taking a stand. So when you have such egregious outright lies and no one is making you answer for them in your own party, where is the morality? Where is the, where is the line? What does he have to lie about in order for Republicans to actually do something about this? And I would even add to that, like, this is the party that was all about, you know, remember, they were the moral majority, right? They were all about, you know, they consider themselves to be the chosen party of evangelicals. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that uh, that the Bible doesn't like lying, you know, but McCarthy's an impossible position, right? He can't win. He can't, you know. He needs the votes. He can't ask Santos to step down. Santos, you know, every I mean, the guy has a four vote margin. You know, he's had to get in bed or he's I don't think he's had to, but he's chosen to get in bed with some of the worst and most besides the sort of most conservative, but also the most obstreperous people in the Republican Party. And he's put them on the rules committee like he put Massey on the rules committee. So I do think that we're going to see. you know, McCarthy is just trying to control this, uh, you know, uncontrollable situation. And I think this we're going to see a lot of sort of, you know, Santos is he's comedic because he's such a sociopath. And I think we're going to see more of that kind of, uh, you know, this is MAGA in Congress and it's uh, untenable. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. You wrote a fantastic piece for us that gets into the congressional reaction to this. I delight, I in preparing for this, I took out so many of the lines that you wrote um, and I was really interested in your take on other members of Congress and their reaction to this. Um, McCarthy in particular, you wrote, McCarthy surely hopes he can sweep Santos under the rug. Sadly for McCarthy, he's going to need an enormous rug. And <laughs> it made me laugh, but it is so true. And I know you were talking to people on Capitol Hill about this and former Congress people. What are they saying about what is going to happen? The Democrats are, I mean, like Richie Torres, who I talked to for that article, I think are, you know, delighted, right? I mean, this guy's a total sociopath. He's dominating the news cycle. It's like, how did this guy get elected? And again, you know, you see Stefanik supported him. Stefanik was fundraising for him. You have all these angry donors who are both mad at Santos and Stefanik. Stefanik is number three in the party. So she's you know, she's going to get up there and people are going to think about how she was fundraising for George Santos. Mm. So I think the damage here will reverberate and it's bad for McCarthy and it's good for Democrats. I do think like ultimately with all these things, it's also bad for all of us, right? Because Santos is, you know, we now see, and again, it's like, you know, we're seeing a person sort of slip through the cracks And, you know, he had all of these allegations, you know, these sort of things floating around and nobody kind of chased them down. So, I mean, what it has ultimately been sort of the success of a lot of local journalists. You know, there was a woman from Patch, Jacqueline Sweet, who really did a great job. New York Times, Michael Gold, you know, a bunch of different people tracked this down. But, you know, had this been tracked down a couple months earlier, you know, this guy never would have won. You, you know, what you're talking about now is that it it's bad for all of us. And you wrote something in your, in your piece that I really encourage people to read that, you know, there's this standard Republican message that lying to Americans is acceptable if it's in the pursuit of power. And I think that that is exactly right. And obviously that is what we've seen from the Republican Party over the last few years. But it does have a, an effect that seeps into all Americans, right? You see it seeping into business executives, you see it's seeping into tech executives. And um, the more you're okay with lies big and small at the top, the more it will creep down to lies big and small in your day-to-day life. It's it's so craven and, and so gross. And I thought you pointing that out uh, was such a, a 
powerful and strong message. I mean, I do think it's the legacy of Trumpism, right, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, they elected someone. Did he uh, donate his salary? Well, we saw in the taxes that he didn't take the deduction, right? Hard to imagine Trump doing something and not taking the deduction. So, uh, you know, did he donate his salary? Did You know, there's so many lies that Republicans got comfortable with, you know, because he was their guy. So I do think the legacy here is, you know, Santos is their guy. And sure, he lied about basically everything, but he's their guy. Now, I do think what has been heartening in my mind is that the Republicans in New York State, like Pete King, have said, you know, no, he should resign. What I think is interesting, too, is those guys have said he should resign. And I think you're seeing, you know, a lot of Republicans who supported him or not a lot, but certainly some Republicans who supported him are furious. And so that is a good sign, I think, for democracy. Let me ask you a question, because I know New York politics enough to know that I am skeptical of the fact that they're asking him to resign because of moral reasons or are they asking him to resign because there's an opportunity there? Yeah. And I also think the calculus is you can't win swing districts with crazy sociopaths, right? Like, I mean, I think if this were in Alabama, they might not ask him to, re- you know, or they might ask him to resign because they know they can put someone else in right away. But yeah, I agree. No, they made the calculus they can't win in swing districts with this kind of candidate. And I think that that is a correct calculus, too. Correct. I mean, I think if you have, you're a party of Matt Gates, uh, and Matt Gates being a star— then it is hard to draw a line at a George Santos, right? I don't know how someone who's being investigated for pretty heinous things is able to be a star and someone who's lying about, some could say, innocuous things or things that have no consequences is um, getting ousted. It's really hard to sort of do that mental gymnastics. You quoted Adam Kinziger in your piece, and I thought it was a really fantastic quote. He said, the longer this goes on, the longer the Democrats can change the subject of any bad day or reaffirm the GOP's truth challenge. And I think that that's true, but I'm wondering if you think that the Democrats are actually going to be able to capitalize on that. So I would say that um, I think Democrats will be able to capitalize on that. I mean, I think it's just such a enticing story for all of us that it would be hard for Democrats not to capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. But I also do think that Republicans are so dysfunctional in the House. McCarthy is such a mess and he cannot, he thinks, I mean, for example, right now he's working on this border security bill, which wouldn't go anywhere and he still can't get it passed. So I do think that he's in, he's such a mess that I think this helps Democrats try to win back the House, which is good because the Senate map is terrible in 24. Sure. We have a, a weekly news meeting every morning, and one of the things that came up in our uh, every every Tuesday morning, and one of the things that came up this morning was that there is an incentive for these people to be stars, right? And you see that you saw that with the McCarthy hearings, and and uh, it really incentivizes people to act out and to behave badly. How does that stop? Where does that end? What is like there is such a gravy train for people who become for lack of a better word, viral on Capitol Hill and become personalities and behaving badly. There are no consequences for but there is an upside for it. I don't know how we get out of this cycle of of rewarding the worst behavior that I've seen in Washington. So, I mean, I think that what is 
I think, yes, it's really a problem. And yes, we have these small dollar donations rewarding people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert. The one thing I would say is that, again, you know, I think they're hitting diminishing returns. I think mm-hmm. that while this was very exciting and I think, look, I, again, we don't know what's going to happen with Trump. You underestimate Trump at your own peril. But I do think, you know, Trump got a lot of free media on this idea that he could say stuff that no one had ever said before that was so beyond the pale that people would cover it because they'd be like, oh, my God, can you believe this? And I think that as that has worn down, you know, it's no longer there's no longer the novelty. So, you know, we know Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to say like nobody is surprised when Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out with an anti-Antifa bill like she did last night on Tucker Carlson. That doesn't, you know, whereas, you know, I feel like in 2016, that kind of thing played big because it was so surprising. Um, so I do think that they're losing a little bit of of a little bit. And, you know, look, the American people hate this, right? Like if we saw anything from this midterm, it's that the American people do not like it. And I think that's an important data point. What do, what do Fox News watching Republicans feel about this? I mean— Again, I just know, I mean, I just know from what I see in conservative media, I don't have any Fox News Republicans in my house, though I do have friends who are Fox News Republicans. Sure. I mean, the ones I know who are like more urban, socially liberal, financially conservative want Trump to go away because they just want to be able to sort of get their candidate in and they don't think Trump can win a general. But again, the, you know, the base still has a lot of love for him. So I don't know. I mean, again, you're going to have, in 23, we're going to see these kind of crazy fights to see who um, can capture the heart of the base. And, you know, if they split the party again, you really could see Trump winning the nomination again. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I go back and forth about this a lot because I don't think, um, I think people have had enough about the nonsense. I think we see that with Santos. We see that with, um, we see that with Trump. And I think that you saw that in the midterms that people were really fatigued with, with the Michigas for lack of a better word. And I don't know that that's gotten any better with time. I don't, I don't see Trump making any moves forward over the last three months to the mid, since the midterm elections. Am I missing anything? No, I agree. I mean, look, from where we sit, he has been very quiet. We have not seen him permeate the media ecosystem the same way. Murdoch is not having it, right? He's not having The Post and the Wall Street Journal are not interested. So, um, you know, it does seem in my mind, too, that the guy is very quiet and that, you know, I've even talked to people who've covered him for a long time who've said they thought his heart isn't in it anymore. Mm. But... The math is such with these Republican primaries 
that if you have him versus Mike Pence versus Nikki Haley versus, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo, I think you could see a world where those guys all split the vote and Trump becomes the de facto nominee. So I don't know. I mean, I also think like, I mean, it does seem like uh, there's some, you know, Santos and also Greg, Greg Abbott and also Glenn, uh, whatever his name is in Virginia, all seem to be kind of interested, you know, in possibly throwing their hats in the ring. Well, as we talk to the Republicans, I have to ask you about the Democrats and about President Biden. We're facing the State of the Union. We're facing um, a re-election announcement. Uh, what do you think about where he is and what ground he is on as we head into this phase? I think Biden's going to run again. I think that putting Jeff Zeitz in as the uh, chief of staff and moving Ron Klain out is because I think that Biden world thinks that they can put in some stuff. You know, Zeitz put together a lot. You know, he's sort of thought of as a fixer. So I think that they felt that they would put in a fixer for the second two years. I mean, look, the secret of the Biden success story is that everybody is like, eh, you know, right? I mean, the, the secret is everyone's like, well, I don't know, you know, he's just this sort of unspectacular white guy. But he has, you know, slipped in tons, you know, he's passed tons of legislation. He had this incredibly successful midterm. Like, you know, so again, you know, just like we say underestimate uh, Trump at his own peril, I would say the same is sort of, tr- you know, at your own peril, I would say the same is sort of true for Biden. Well, I also think that, like, you do not have a rising star that is coming forward where maybe, like, eh, this is fine is enough to beat absolute chaos and mudslinging and things that we know that the American electorate is just over and doesn't want to see anymore. I, I think maybe you would rather have unremarkable and steady versus out-of-control madness right. again. I also think, like, part of – there was a real anxiety with the American electorate about Hillary. You can say, you know, I mean, there are a number of reasons why I think. But, like, the lesson that Democrats got from that, whether good or bad, true or false, was that, you know, running a white guy who is, like, not even a white guy, the whitest white guy – um, mm-hmm. you know, who's been around for a million years um, may have some, you know, may have some benefit for them. And so I think that is the sort of larger question. My my last question for you is you've spent, uh, you spent a wonderful interview with Vice President Harris, which again, all of you should go and read. Just go and read all of Molly's beautiful pieces for Vanity Fair, but you spent an incredible interview with her. Is she sticking around? Yeah. I mean, she's definitely sticking around. So I think that her staff has gotten a little more aggressive about getting her out there in a way that has shown dividends for her, even just right away. Like, for example, you know, on this 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, she went to uh, Florida and she spoke and she gave a speech that really trolled DeSantis. And DeSantis finds himself in this impossible position with Roe v. Wade, right, where the base really wants abortion gone forever. 
but most voters don't, right? Like, you know, six six in 10 Americans are pro-choice. So she went to Florida and sort of tested him. And I think that ultimately you're going to see more and more of that kind of thing from her. And I think it's going to be successful. And it doesn't matter because this, I don't think there's a world in which they move her off the ticket. Well, from your mouth, we will all we will all remember you saying it here. And I'm just so grateful for you coming back and sharing your wisdom and your very, 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 very deep notebook and Rolodex. And we just hope that you'll come back and continue sharing with us. Well, the feeling is so mutual. I'm just delighted to be interviewed by you. I'm such a fan and I can't wait for your next piece for Vanity Fair. And uh, so it's very mutual. So thank you. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.